Welcome to a special end-of-year worldview, the foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. This time last year, the world was coming to terms with the surprise election of the maverick Republican candidate Donald Trump as President of the United States. Just months earlier, Europe had experienced its own political earthquake with the decision of the UK to leave the European Union. With support for populist parties rising in other countries too, the world suddenly seemed a very uncertain and unpredictable place. My guests today will be looking back at how things have panned out since then and examining the implications of some of the major political events of 2018. And I'm very pleased to be joined in studio by Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, home from the US for the festive season, Paddy Smith, our Europe editor, back from Brussels, and Ruan McCormack, our in-house foreign affairs specialist who has a great inconvenience made his way downstairs to us from the editor's office. You're all very welcome. Um, Suzanne, I think we have to start uh, with Donald Trump. And indeed, you have something in common with the US president. You both started in your new jobs uh, more or less the same day. Um, I may um, last longer than him, though, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, my money will be on you, certainly. Um, How would you rate Trump's year benchmarked against the commitments that he made, you know, by his own lights, if you like, and the promises he made to his own supporters? What kind of year do you think he's had? Well, in one sense, I think it's it's very easy uh, to find fault with Trump's achievements this year. You know, the wall he promised with Mexico hasn't happened. His uh, proposed Muslim ban has got caught in, in the courts, essentially. And in a lot of ways, he hasn't followed through on many of his promises. But I think that's to underestimate actually the very serious impact uh, he is having on American politics and American life. And actually, if you look at it, he has achieved quite a bit. For example, um, he's pulled out of the UN, uh, the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Um, He has pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal or or semi-pulled out. It's left up to Congress to come up with a replacement. Um, And even on trade, he has... Within his first few weeks in office, he pulled out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he's renegotiating NAFTA, the trade uh, agreement between Canada, the US and Mexico. Uh, So I think it is, as I say, too simplistic to say he hasn't achieved a lot. Now, most importantly, however, is I think that's going to have maybe implications for long after he leaves office in things like his tax uh, plan, which he did achieve in the the last few days of, of the session in Congress this week. Um, but also, I think what he's doing with the judiciary is very, very interesting. Um, That's a story people are starting to pick yeah, up on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that the problem with with covering Trump, uh, the phenomenon of Trump over the last year, um, is that so much is happening. The drama, the soap opera of the Trump presidency means that a lot of really serious news is being neglected because there really is so much happening uh, under the Trump presidency. And one of those uh, developments that's been quietly happening is that he's been appointing a lot of conservative judges to the courts, to the various courts in the US, there were a lot of vacancies Obama didn't fill for various reasons. Um, not just the Supreme Court nomination, which was very important, Neil Gorsuch, uh, who's only a young man uh, and a conservative judge who's now become the ninth member of the Supreme Court, but also a series of, of lower uh, judges. Um, and these are lifetime appointments, aren't mm, they? Exactly. So I think, that, you know, he is a, um, that's exactly, it's going to have implications long after he leaves office and change the hue of, of the judicial system, if you like. Uh, but also, it's a one of the, the rare uh, examples of where Trump and his party, the Republican Party, and that's been such a th- interesting theme of this year, the kind of tensions between them, but where they're on the same page. This is what the Republican, conservative, traditional Republicans really want. This is why they wanted a Republican president in the, in the White House. That's why some of them turned a blind eye to Trump's obvious failings and wanted their man in for exactly these reasons. Um, so I think that's an example of something that's been quietly happening Um, as well as all the drama, as I say, 
uh, that's been happening within the White House over the last year. And he did finish um, the year, or the Republicans and Trump finished the year with a big win, as you just mentioned, um, the passage uh, through Congress of this one and a half trillion dollar um, tax package. How significant do you think that's going to be looking forward to, you know, elections, midterm elections next year and so on? I, th- I think it is significant. This, I mean, it's the first huge, first big reform of the tax code since Reagan 1986. So undoubtedly, you know, it's a win for Trump. Um, and they badly needed a legislative win this year, having achieved very little in Congress, despite controlling all the levers of power, essentially, uh, in Washington. Um, but of course, the problem is, it's how that's going to play with the electorate. You know, how much I think a poll in CNN um, this week said that uh, 55% of voters oppose the plan. Um, and that has been increasing the opposition to the to the tax plan. So this is the problem. Yes, it's, it's a legislative victory, but how much will people really care, um, the ordinary voters on that? Now, up to three quarters of people will get a tax cut probably from, from next year, although the individual tech tax cuts that are envisaged in the plan will expire uh, after 10 years or so uh, to do with budget rules uh, where the corporation tax rules are, m- are more permanent. Um but there is a sense that unlike healthcare, where that was so emotive and people really felt something about that, uh, whether you know that's going to really um, be a result for him in the polls really remains to be seen. You know, Eden Bread is quickly forgotten and all that. And by the time the midterms come along next November, it may be uh, well forgotten at that stage. It's important in terms of the optics too, though, isn't it? Um, maybe it's a cliche to say Americans like winners, but that's kind of the, the impression we have. The site yesterday of Trump and all the Republican Congressmen and women on the South Lawn of the White House, they were able to have this big celebration. It was yeah. a very, visually, a very good way Absolutely. for them to Absolutely, and it's, it, it also um, dovetails with his theme about, you know, the system being broken in Washington and we need to get something done and that kind of, I'm a, I'm a doer, I can get things done. Um, so I think that's, that, you're right about the visuals of that. Um, but in terms of, I mean, I do think, and, and myself included, one of the other themes of 2017, to be fair to the uh, Trump administration, is the U.S. economy has been really storming ahead. Now, the global economy has been as well, but the U.S. stock market and the U.S. economy. Now, of course, um, a lot of the reasons for that were in place well before Trump's election, but he is there nearly a year now at this stage. And that instead of the markets retreating after the Trump victory, as many have predicted, actually, we've got the Trump bump, it's called, and stock markets are at records high. Now, And unemployment is very, very low. We've got big, you know, good growth in America. Now, of course, one of the problems with that is um, the the kernel of the Republican argument about their tax plan is that the $1.5 trillion in cuts that's included uh, are going to spur economic growth. And that will kind of compensate for the loss of of $1.5 trillion in cuts. But of course, when the economy is running so strongly at full tilt, there's very little room for extra, uh, you know, momentum there. So uh, there are now now questions about how much further the US economy can outperform at this stage, uh, even though these tax cuts probably will boost consumer sentiment uh, next year. That that seems to be uh, seems to be true. But I do think, you know, Trump supporters and Republican supporters generally like this narrative that the economy is doing well, the stock market is doing well. You know, they're happy with that. Um, And I think it's economy continues to do well, that'll, that'll be a big advantage for Trump going into the midterms. Paddy, how do you, would you say Trump is viewed from Europe at this stage? Have, you, have European leaders worked out a, a way of kind of dealing with this maverick in the White House? Or are they sort of hoping the next three years will pass by without too many mishaps and Not things really. get back I to think, normal? I, I think Suzanne's being rather kind to, to him. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say that, that there is a, there's an extraordinary, one of his great achievements has been to unite uh, Europe around um, Angela Merkel, perhaps as the free leader of the free world, 
uh, in the absence of leadership from America. Uh, in in terms on 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 the global stage, he's also had an effect in in, in Asia in in propelling people uh, to to a sort of the sort of unification around around uh, trade deals that uh, um, he wanted to to break from. He he disapproves of of uh, TTIP, and um, I think he's sort of made China almost the the, the leader now of the idea of a global economy. Yeah, and, it's yeah. for de mieux. You know, if you don't have leadership coming from America, then the Chinese can step in, and uh, I think there is a strong sense of that in in Europe. Uh, a total exasperation with him over the the Paris Accord, in particular, um, concern about him, his attitude to NATO. Though he did mend some of the bridges that he initially burned uh, by saying that he would come to Europe's defence if it if it was attacked, and he did regard NATO's mutual defence commitment as as, Im- as important. But it was very grudging, and it was rather belated. Um, they are unbelievably exasperated about his recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which flies in the face of uh, of the international consensus, let alone the European, a strong uh, European consensus. So uh, the sense is that there's no good news and, and f- from America, and people are beginning to talk about pro- post-Trump uh, America, and it's unfortunately still a long way off. Unless, uh, as I heard Sarah, Suzanne uh, a few minutes ago suggesting that maybe Trump wouldn't be around for 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 too long, I I suspect that the wheel, wheels grind too slowly in America to actually see a serious political move uh, to to impeach him. Um, now we might we might come back to Trump before we're done, and I'd like to ask Suzanne maybe in a while something about even what it's the, the kind of uh, phenomenon of of covering uh, what it's like covering this this phenomenon, if you like, and how all encompassing it is. But we will just come back to that. But the, the big story, Paddy, in in Brussels, obviously this year has been Brexit. Now this time last year. Uh, we were in the position where Britain had voted to leave the European Union, but hadn't yet triggered the you know, Article 50 process to get negotiations beginning. So we still didn't really know what direction things were going to take and when. How would you assess how the year has played out? Has it been um, played out as you would have expected or have there been any surprises? I think it's, it's played out uh, in the sense of, of completing phase one of the negotiations. Uh, that is an important uh, step. It, it wasn't uh, smooth. Uh, it was put back uh, a couple of times, and and uh, uh, finally the barrier was crossed in in, in December, with a deal that uh, Ireland is, has been claiming has has been particularly strong. Uh, so there is progress being made, but there is a sense of exasperation there about uh, the UK. Uh, all of the the Commission, the Council, uh, um, member states have been saying pretty firmly in the last uh, few weeks, look, it's time for you to get off the pot and tell us what it is that you actually want. Uh, exasperation that the, the, the UK has, because of its internal difficulties, has, has failed to define what sort of a trade deal, trade relationship it wants with, um, with Britain. Now, one of the hints that we got was in the deal that, that was done, uh, the so-called joint accord uh, that was done between uh, <clears throat> By May, uh, on a very early Friday morning, she came over and signed a, a deal with with Juncker, and um, it's it, it's been suggested by the Irish government, particularly, that this is a bulletproof agreement committing the Britain to ensuring that there's no hard border in in, in Ireland. My own view would be somewhat more sceptical. I I think that we had 
on the Monday before that what might have been called a bulletproof agreement because we knew exactly how the border would be prevented. It would be prevented by regulatory alignment in the north with the south, something you could sign on the dotted line and say, this will happen, boom, 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 and it could be put into the treaty, the withdrawal treaty, which now has to be drafted. Instead, we got an, we got an agreement which said, well, we'd like to have no border, and we're, we promise that we won't have a border when we do a deal with Europe, which gives us uh, free trade and regulatory, and along with that, some kind of regulatory in the whole UK, of the UK with the whole of the EU. Therefore, there won't be a need for a border. That is really pretty tentative, and that deal would be very difficult to do, as everybody is discussing at the moment, uh, as, as we're beginning to get sight of the first British proposals. The alternative, the fallback position, which the government has been so uh, proud of, is, is a very confusing wording based on regulatory alignment with uh, elements of the Good Friday Agreement, which are crucial to the Good Friday Agreement. So you don't subscribe to the the view that um, that, that Britain, in, in, if you like, locking itself into this arrangement, this ag agreement on regulatory alignment between the North and South, has um, almost inadvertently now locked itself into an arrangement where it's going to have to maintain that kind of alignment with the European Union. It seems, um, it seems to suggest uh, that they are going to go for a soft, a soft Brexit. It, that's the logic of their position. The problem is that they continue to insist that a the membership of the single market and membership of the customs union are ruled out. And the commission in its document commenting on the, analyzing the, the context, the content of the, the joint accord said it's difficult to reconcile the position being adopted by the British and uh, the, the, with the red lines that they have put, uh, put down uh, for the future. Now, it's understandable. I, I, I can understand how if the UK makes an offer that sounds good, uh, that seems to give you what you want. Um, you take it, even if you don't believe that they are capable of delivering it. Uh, the issue is now how how they will deliver it, and I I I'm, must say I'm I'm quite sceptical. But doesn't it look like the UK has put itself into a position whereby it's committed to leaving the customs union and the single market, but it's going to have to maintain some kind of relationship with the EU, which is tantamount to actually being in, in both. Isn't yeah, that that's the logic. That's the logic. But I, I, I can't see how they, they can do that. And um, uh, I think that they have... It, the only way that they can do it is by confronting the uh, Brexiteers very clearly and firmly and saying, actually, we're not going to, to do the, this free trade regime with the rest of the world in the way that you hope. Um, it's not going to be possible because our biggest market is the European Union and we have to maintain our relationship there. Therefore, we have to maintain a regulatory alignment. But that's a battle that she has refused, May has refused to, to undertake so far and doesn't show any great inclination uh, to, to undertake. She repeated it at the cabinet meeting last week uh, when they discussed the transition arrangements. And um, it, it's certainly not clear uh, how they're going to get over that particular hurdle. Another open question I should add is probably that um, whether May can confront the Brexiteers in that way and survive is a big question. Um, you know, so a lot hinges on May's ability to remain in 10 Downing Street, which at the moment is in the interest of her party and of the European Union. Um, but she's on pretty weak ground. She has become a lot weaker in the last couple of days. She's lost her closest ally in government, uh, Damien Green. So that's a big question. I suppose the fundamental point about the agreement last week is that it's a fudge. It's a classic piece of fudge that allows different people to read it in, in different ways or read it 
as meaning different things. And as Paddy says, the fundamental contradiction has not been resolved and we don't know how it's going to be resolved. The British have made some soothing noises in the last couple of weeks, but they haven't said this is explicitly what we're going to do. Um, I think for Ireland, um, I don't know if you'd agree, Paddy, but it's going to become much more difficult now because in phase one, Ireland was looking for several things from its European counterparts, primarily on the border, given that the common travel area issue was put to bed pretty early. Um, and the principle of you know the Good Friday Agreement remaining in place was conceded pretty early on. There was no disagreement on that. But the key issue for Ireland was some sort of commitment on the border, the avoidance of a hard border. There wasn't any when it went when Ireland went to the EU twenty seven and said we want your back on, we want you to have our back on this. There was no cost to any other members of the European Union in giving that commitment. Um, once you get into phase two and you're talking about trade, every single state has a selfish interest in the outcome and many of them want a different outcome because some of them have very heavy trade with the UK, some of them in Southern Europe in particular don't have or have virtually no, no trade at all and so the in, their interests start to diverge whereas in phase one their interests are very much aligned and it was easy for them to give Dublin that commitment knowing that the UK was weak, knowing that the UK was conceding on all the big points already. Um, I think it becomes much more difficult and yes it's important that, that the Irish issue will be a separate strand in phase two but it's one strand among many and many more contentious issues as well, I think. Do you think? Yeah, I think the, what I was going to say uh, about the, the, the year 2017 uh, that was most remarkable was the degree of unity of the 27 member states behind Ireland's position to the point where they said at the end, quite explicitly, it's your call, guys, whatever you want, we'll back you 100%. That, that is something that, that uh, uh, is, is remarkable. And that sort of solidarity, I think, ruins right. We can't continue to expect. But I think that the, the, I wouldn't underestimate the possibilities. There, there are the countries like um, Romania and, and, and Bulgaria, for example, uh, they're going to be very interested in, in for, for example, ensuring continuing payments by the British into the European uh, Union to, to allow them to get uh, structural and social funds. Um, so they won't be so interested in the details of the, of the trade things, but they will depend on the other member states who are interested in the, the trade barriers to support them. And I think there are basic, there are, there's a basis there for really strong, uh, for strong alliances. Just on that, I was wondering, Paddy, your views, because I'd, I'd agree with Ruin saying there, is there a danger that the Irish government has, has almost used up its political capital already and actually the real because that nobody wanted to return to the border and everybody wants the peace process to continue, etc. But next year, when these negotiations start on trade, I suppose, do you think, for example, I mean, where the alliances are and needs to build and do you think the tax issue, um, you know, we always hear that they, they might come down and say, well, you know, that pressure on our tax system is always there, particularly from, from the French, and that they might say, well, sorry, Ireland, you know, you've already got your deal on Northern Ireland. I know you want a close trade relationship, but etc. Why don't you change your tax? You know, do you think that's a... I, it's been hovering around the, 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 the periphery and there are going to be new commission, uh, commission proposals uh, in, in the new year on, on tax uh, um, harmonisation and on, on, on harmonising the tax base. Uh, the reality is, however, there, there is a group of uh, five or six countries around Ireland who believe that this is better sorted out through the OECD and the OECD is also going to report and will be will be putting its proposals in the, in the, in the spring and i think the sufficient the irish have sufficient ability to 
deflect the argument into the OECD uh, that, it, that it isn't going to be a huge problem. The French are, are well aware that these are unanimity issues and as indeed the trade talks will be in, involving uh, uh, unanimous discussions uh, by uh, the, the, the member states. Uh, so I, I think on, on balance, I'm, I'd be more optimistic. I think the real problem is dragging from the British uh, a coherent expression of what it is that they want. And it's, it's looking like March before we will get that and before we will get the beginnings of what's called a framework discussion on, on trade, at which stage the withdrawal agreement has to be um, more or less drafted or certainly well under, under, under drafting. And, and I have problems with how the commitments being made to Ireland can be put into, particularly on, on the hard border, how they can be put into legal language in a withdrawal agreement that has to be approved before we get anywhere near the trade discussions which, which will actually resolve the border issue. I think that that's going to be a very interesting and rather pr problematic uh, period. And Paddy, just putting aside specific Irish concerns for a moment, how um, difficult do you think the trade talks are going to be? The first phase talks will cover three issues, of course, citizens' rights, the Irish border and the, and the, the, the divorce bill. And they went on three months longer, I think, than scheduled to prove to be really intractable. But it's, would, would, those, would that first phase look like it's been a picnic compared to what's now ahead? Well, that's certainly the view of everybody who's involved on the European side. Uh, the UK officials, ministers keep saying, ah, no, it's easy. All we have to do is, is because we, we've got regulatory alignment at the moment, all we have to do is more or less take a deal off the shelf, tweak it for our interests. It's not as simple as that. It's far, far more complicated. There are really interesting and difficult issues. For example, um, state aids. State aids policy is central to the European single market. It means that no one government in Europe can subsidize, can, can put uh, money into uh, ailing industries to boost their own industries against other uh, competitors in the European market. If you do a trade deal with uh, Europe, you will have to introduce your own state aid rules and the British will be very reluctant to agree to, uh, to agree that they can't subsidize and, and prop up uh, industries. Part of central part of actually the labor, uh, labor demands on, on, on the uh, trade issue. So there are, there are quite apart from the specifics in every single sector uh, and, and I think it's very unlikely they'll get it uh, uh, anywhere near a deal on, on services. Uh, within two to three years uh, at the very outside, um, if, if at all, because many of the Europeans are, are basically think, no, we should keep the uh, British banks uh, out of um, uh, Europe. Uh, it means that it, it's a very complicated uh, um, negotiation with many points of, of um, likely collapse or likely uh, blockage. And can you just remind us what's the timetable for that uh, phase well, of, of talks? There are. It, it's quite complicated. The, the EU is not allowed to discuss trade deal with a member state. Uh, it can only discuss a trade deal once Britain has has left. So those those trade talks can't actually technically start until March uh, 1919, which is when uh, the British, when when Brexit happens, mm. and they move into a transition period and, and all that. But the Britain doesn't accept this, so they in practice, they think. They, no, they what, 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 there is a compromise position, which means that they can start talks, and they, these will probably start in, 
in March and, and April of, of 2018 on what's called a framework for a trading relationship, which will set the broad parameters of how that's going to, going to work. So they're hoping that the big picture will emerge sufficiently for, uh, uh, by the time of, of actual Brexit. So they can say to business, well, do, you don't have to worry about you know, financial services. You these are all going to be sorted in the, in the nitty-gritty trade talks. The framework agreement will start, as I say, in, in March and, and will probably finish uh, sometime just before, just before Brexit in, in 2019. Um, Ruan, moving on from, from Brexit and uh, Donald Trump, what um, would you identify some among the more sort of interesting um, issues that, that you know, have emerged in, in, in the world this year? It's difficult to get away from Donald Trump, but one of the big changes, I think, is an indirect result of his election, and that's that the rise of Russia, the rise of Vladimir Putin as a an influential player in the Middle East, and the way in which Putin has used this as a springboard to bring Russia back to the high table of global geopolitics. I think that's been one of the really interesting trends over the last couple of years. So if you take, there was a day there in mid-December where... Vladimir Putin traveled to three Middle Eastern countries. He went to Syria, uh, Turkey, and Egypt in the same day. He started off in early in the morning in Syria, where he visited a, a joint Russian-Syrian uh, army airbase. And there he, in effect, declared mission accomplished. He said, in our two years, two and a bit years in Syria, we've achieved all our aims. We've all but destroyed Islamic State, which is the most sophisticated international group of terrorists there's ever been. Um, what he didn't say was that they'd also achieved their chief aim, which was to retain uh, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, in power. So when in Russia, when in 2015 the Russians went in, most of the West, um, many Middle Eastern powers were saying Assad had to leave as a precondition for talks even to begin. You don't really hear that said anymore. Um, Assad has made a lot of gains. He's he's entrenched, um, and the Russians have retained their Mediterranean. Uh, base at Tartus, they've maintained a presence, they're going to keep troops in Syria, and Putin gets to bring back the bulk of those troops, or at least to tell Russian uh, voters that most of those troops are coming back in time for the March presidential election, which of course he's going to win anyway, but there you go. Um, I think so, on Syria, I don't know, it's, hmm. a, it's amazing how the Russian intervention there has almost shaped the entire... The, the way the world looks at that at that war now. I mean, now of course it has changed on the battlefield as well, but it was initially about you know the Assad regime and the attempts to topple him and the opposition and so on. And then you had these other groups, like Islamic State and Shabat al-Nusra, entering the field. But now it's become the narrative is entirely it's about the regime versus the terrorists in the field, isn't it? And the Russians have really helped shape that narrative, haven't they? They have, and let's not forget the commentary in 2015, and was it September 2015 when the Russians went in? I remember Ash Carter, uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time, saying Russia was going into a quagmire, it was going to be another, it was going to be um, a, another Afghanistan. Um, from the Americans' perspective, at least, um, you know that the Russians were going to have a really difficult time, that they were going to suffer huge losses, that it was going to expose the, um, their weakness, their military weakness, the, their outdated um, equipment, and so on. None of that has happened. I mean, Russia has suffered minimal losses. As I say, it's achieved all its strategic goals. Certainly not going to be a su say it's a success, given that you know a huge number of people died at the hands of uh, the Russian and Syrian army. It's certainly not a success at any uh, reasonable person's uh, by any reasonable person's interpretation of the word, but by Russia's, you know, selfish strategic measurement of this, it's been a success. 
Um, and so Putin went to Syria. He declared mission accomplished. From there, he goes to Egypt, where he's cultivating a good relationship with President Sisi. He announced that Russia would uh, start building uh, Egypt's, Egypt's first nuclear um, facility. It's going to cost $30 billion. He then goes to uh, Ankara, where he meets President Erdogan, um, who he's met seven times this year. Uh, he agrees that uh, the Russians are going to sell an air uh, missile defense system to the Turks, which until very recently the Russians have been refusing to, to do. The general sense you get from all of this... Not that long since the Turks shot down a Russian... Um, it's two years yeah. since the Turks shot down a Russian jet on the Syrian-Turkish border. It's one year since the Russian ambassador was assassinated in Ankara. Um, but the relationship has been repaired and they've both been working really assiduously on it. Um, the general impression all of this creates and confirms is that Putin is establishing himself as the go-to person for powers in the Middle East where they go to get their problems fixed. He's talking to Hamas. He's talking to the Palestinian uh, uh, Authority in Ramallah. He, he, the Russians, have played an important role in attempts to reconcile those two groups. He's also talking to the Israelis. He, even though he is one of Iran's chief allies in the, reason, in the region, he's also talking to Saudi Arabia and he's managed to get Saudi Arabian help in bringing some of the uh, Sunni groups in Syria together um, and to prepare them for peace talks. He's launched a sort of separate strand of Syrian peace talks, the Astana process, which is in effect a rival process to the UN-led Geneva process. Um, so everywhere you go, you can see Russian influence. He was very happy. Um, Suzanne mentioned, or, or Paddy, I can't remember who, mentioned Jerusalem. Putin was more than happy to side with every Middle Eastern country that lined up against Donald Trump a couple of weeks ago in Jerusalem. Um, now, how this plays out, how this works long term is an open question because some of these relationships will become difficult to maintain. You can only um, you know, keep talking to both sides of, of a rivalry such as Saudi Arabia, Iran for so long, there are going to be points of tension here. Very difficult to say how it will play out long term. But I think the short to medium term effect is that it has restored um, Russia to a preeminent position, certainly a position it hasn't had in the Middle East since the Cold War. And as a result, it has made much Russia much more geopolitically important in the world. He's also very adept. Would you agree, Paddy, in, in sowing division among European Union um, leaders and states? Or this? Not so much. One of the outcomes of the summit, um, the December summit, was was the renewal of sanctions against uh, um, Putin and, and Russia uh, over the Ukraine. And uh, there was near unanimity. They expected uh, the, the, the Hungarians and uh, the uh, Czechs, I think it was, to, to object. But there was no, no, not a murmur of, of, of objection. Now, uh, there is a lot of suspicion about the role that he has played uh, in the French elections, for example, in terms of, of pumping uh, propaganda in over social media. And uh, there, there's suspicions about what he's got planning to do in the Italian elections, which are, which are, are looming. So he's, he is ever-present in the discussions, and he has some very close contacts Notably, on the far right in in uh, in French politics and in European politics. Um, Andrew, on uh, I think another is, is something you've written about actually in a review of the year we've got coming out shortly. Uh, developments in the Middle East and really interesting actually is the, uh, the the change in the succession order in Saudi Arabia, isn't that right? Yeah, this is this has big implications for Saudi Arabia itself. But given Saudi Arabia's strength in the region, it has you know it'll have a really big effect on the dynamics of the Middle Eastern politics more generally. So. King Salman ascended to the throne in 2015. Almost immediately, he installed his son, Mohammed bin Salman, who's now 32, 
uh, as Interior Minister. And in the last two years, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's known, has been consolidating his power. Um, he, in November, is seen as having been behind this purge of leading politicians, royals, businessmen in Riyadh. Um, pictures went around the world of these businessmen being corralled into a five-star hotel in Riyadh. Um, many of them have since been released, but it's clear that this was an attempt by bin Salman to uh, consolidate his own control, which he's been building steadily over the past two years. He is heir to the throne. Um, King Salman has an effect. He's about 81, 82 himself now. Um, he has ceded a lot of authority and control to his son. It looks like he's going to be the next king, um, which would throw out you know, decades of convention and royal tradition in Saudi Arabia, where you had a, a horizontal succession. And each son of King Abdulaziz, the founder of the modern state, in turn took the, the, um, uh, uh, the throne. He will be in there for a very long time if he ascends to the throne in the next couple of years. He has done some very interesting things. He has started a sort of a tentative social liberalization in Saudi Arabia. So he's announced that women will be allowed to drive next year. Cinemas are, public cinemas are going to open. He's talked about um, the need for a more moderate interpretation of uh, Islam, which is revolutionary given the you know, austere fundamentalist version of Wahhabism that Saudi Arabia has exported for decades. Um, he's also embarked on a pretty ambitious and radical economic reform plan the background to which is the collapsing price of oil and the need for Saudi Arabia to diversify its economy. But he's talking about tax increases. He's talking about the sale of state assets. He's selling a big chunk of Aramco, biggest company in the world, the um, Saudi oil company. Um, but internationally in the region, he's been much more belligerent and aggressive than any Saudi leader in decades. He is seen as the brains behind the, you know, on any level, deeply unsuccessful um, intervention in Yemen, which has turned into a humanitarian catastrophe. There are millions of people facing hunger. Um, uh, the major human, uh, humanitarian catastrophe really in the world, I think now is identified by the UN. Isn't certainly, it? yeah. Um, but even on Saudi Arabia's own terms, it hasn't succeeded on any level. It hasn't made them any safer. It hasn't, I mean, the battle lines haven't shifted in about a year um, and it's only getting worse and they're coming under greater pressure to ease the blockade and, and ultimately to withdraw. He's, MBS is also seen as um, the, 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 the driver of the attempt to diplomatically blockade Qatar, which has been a, an unmitigated disaster in that the ostensible aim of it was to withdraw Qatar from Iran's uh, orbit, whereas in fact it has put such pressure on Qatar that it's forced the Qataris to seek even more help from Iran. So this is going to make a lot of countries in the in the Pretty region very kind nervous. Candid intervention in Lebanon as well, it seems, where they got the prime minister to resign while he was in Saudi Arabia. And as soon as he was back, back home, you know, their resignation was, was rescinded. Exactly. Also, we're getting reports that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's close to Jared Kushner in Washington, has been functioning as some sort of an intermediary or more between Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah and the Americans as the Americans work on uh, this peace plan of theirs. And the report suggests that Riyadh has been almost facilitating the Americans in coming up with a, um, a set of proposals that the Palestinians will never be able to live with. Um, uh, and this is, this is going to have a hugely unsettling effect on the region more generally because there were certain things that you could rely on. And one of them was always that the Saudis would, the Saudis had the back of the Palestinians in Ramallah. 
um, if that's not going to be the case, um, you know, a lot of our assumptions about the Middle East and the dynamics of that conflict in particular are going to have to be revised. Yeah, in fact, there is a, a, a kind of a sense now really that the, the Palestinian Palestinian issue is no longer the unifying issue, you know, among the Arab, in the Arab world that it always has been, and that it's, they're not necessarily the, necessarily the priority anymore for some Arab states, including you know. Saudi Arabia, possibly, if those suggestions are true, that 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 uh, he was playing this role, you know, and on 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 the US's part, has anybody got a, well, a view I on mean, that? It's interesting. I mean, Trump's first foreign trip as president was to Saudi, was to the Middle East, um, was to Saudi, and I think that said a lot about his priorities. And as Ruan mentioned, there, Jared Kushner has been taking a leading role in developing the White House Middle East policy, and. And this idea that was put out there quite early was that he was doing this in conjunction with other partners, as they say, in the Middle East to get a to, to get a kind of a new a new kind of solution to this problem. But as you say, now this question's asked about what exactly um, they may be coming up with in these conversations on that. Um, but in saying that, I mean, when the like it's interesting from the European perspective, like there's a lot of divides, I think within Europe as well about the the, the two states, you know, about the, the Middle East process and Ireland, I suppose, would always have taken a very strong role in, in the EU along with, I suppose, France and Sweden maybe, but other countries see it kind of differently, you know, that it's it's not as much of a, a foreign policy issue as it is. So I think perhaps are we going to see this kind of fracturing in, in the international community about how best to deal with this intractable issue, if you like, in the region, uh, both in terms of Middle East and America, but also uh, within Europe perhaps as well? It, it's extraordinarily difficult to see America as as the intermediary. I know they're working on a peace plan and people are, are dying to see, but the, the move on Jerusalem uh, has put people's backs up to such an extent uh, that, and I think many of the leading Palestinians say it's not possible anymore. We, we can't see uh, America as an honest broker and, and perhaps they will look more to Europe, but Europe doesn't have anything in its back pocket ready ready to to, to produce. So it's... it's um, it's very difficult. And I think you're right to say that the Palestinian issue is no longer the central uh, axis around which North, um, politics in the Middle East uh, uh, revolves. It's the, it, it's the Sunni-Shia divide between, uh, um, which, is, which is determining the dynamics of, of, of the process there, particularly between uh, Iran and, and, and Saudi. But uh, among each of them, their client states lining up uh, against each other and and very fierce um, rivalry between the two. Um, listen, there are so many other issues we could discuss and really we're just taking a snapshot of some of the major issues. So, you know, this this year, um, I was going to ask Susanna a question. Paddy's raising his hand, so uh, off you go, Paddy. Well, yes. I, I do think we shouldn't pass on without mentioning South Africa and, and the uh, election of Cyril Ramaphosa to lead the African National Congress because that's a real landmark in the history of, of, of South Africa and the eclipse of, of the ANC's most corrupt uh, uh, leadership in, in, in decades. Uh, Zuma is still in, in office, but how long he will remain in office isn't clear. Uh, and Ramaphosa is, is it's, a, it's a sign that, that there is a, a real possibility that the ANC will return to a, a more uh, um, less corrupt, less corrupt, less corrupt. Yeah. Less corrupt, <laughs> less corrupt Isn't this problem, though, I suppose, um, 
that that not only that Zuma is still in power until uh, 2019, but that um, a lot of Zuma's uh, sort of allies were also elected to very senior positions this week in the ANC. So, so he's surrounded still by you know. So the, it does a, um, he hasn't got a home run really, has he? No, it's not a, not a home run, but it is it is remarkable, uh, nevertheless, because uh, uh, the the ANC has has become so. Uh, associated with with uh, corruption and uh, uh, that we are seeing a turning point, I think, in in South African history. Uh, and just after what happened in Zimbabwe as well, a little more than a month after the the coup, essentially in Zimbabwe as well. Yeah, and what are your what were, were your hopes for Zimbabwe? Um, it's the fall of Mugabe, but his replacement, of course, you know, is a. Um, <laughs> also got a questionable track record. But do you think it'll bring the change people are hoping for? Anybody? I think it's impossible to put the genie back into the bottle, so to speak. Uh, the, I think that we'll be, we, will, we will see a tension between um, the new regime and, and the people as, as he, he tries to back off on, on, on democratic reform. But the likelihood is an election will happen and the, that uh, you, you will see a new, a new form of government uh, elected in, in Zimbabwe too. Um, Suzanne, I did just want to ask you almost from a personal point of view as a journalist covering this Trump story. Um, you're, you're, you're covering the biggest story in the world, you know, I guess. But at the same time, it's so all encompassing. You know, normally a Washington correspondent would have a really variety of stories to cover. Um, and I was just even struck this week because we were just preparing some of our end of year you know, reviews, looking at our own front page like three or four times a week. Donald Trump features in the in the front page and the in the, the slot where we advertise what's inside, what's the biggest story inside in the world news page. So, uh, you... yeah, I think it's as captivating for Americans and American media as it is for the entire world. The Trump phenomenon, just the shock and awe that we began this year with him coming into the White House, and, and you know, there's a reality now setting in. He is there, and um, you know, barring, I mean, next year the big thing, the, the, the midterm elections in November. Um, but also the Mueller investigation is ongoing, and we, are we going to get a you know something from that earlier on in the year, which is entirely possible. Um, so I think w- what's been interesting to me is, I mean, the whole relationship between Trump and the media has itself been a story, and it's been a phenomenon to use one of his favorite words um, in itself. But I think it, it, you cannot stress as much. What, what's really strikes me about America is how divided a the country is, but b the media landscape. So there's two narratives, very different narratives happening simultaneously in America. And one is um, being uh, pushed by, you know, most mainstream liberal media, The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, etc., which is very rightly holding Trump to account um, and reporting what's happening in the White House. But you also have a very, very strong uh, strain of conservative media that's so powerful in the U.S., mainly Fox News. Um, and which has been supported by the president himself, who's got a very different uh, narrative. And that's all very pro-Trump. Um, it's So I think it's easy for us or people internationally to underestimate how powerful that narrative is. Um, and the problem is it's people's positions in America become more and more entrenched. And I think the media, which they consume, are, you know, it's the, the bubble, you, you know, make that, that more secure for them. And I think that's going to continue into 2018. And one of the most worrying, I think, developments of the last few weeks uh, in December was a narrative of, which was propagated by Fox News in particular, um, about the Mueller investigation itself being flawed. 
and that there are conflicts of interest within that and that a special prosecutor actually needs to be appointed to investigate Mueller. And this isn't just, this is a mainstream story now in Fox News every single day that actually the real scandal is Hillary Clinton. Actually, the real scandal is the anti-Trump bias within the FBI. And then you have, you know, you have a specter now of Donald Trump going to the FBI graduation ceremony just before Christmas. And before he gets in uh, to his helicopter, he goes on a rampage about the FBI and it being, you know, flawed and disgraceful, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that narrative has almost been put in place, I think, to preempt um, any any neg- negative finding that might come out of the Mueller investigation. Um, but I do think that's something that I notice living and working in America is just how divided the media landscape mm-hmm. is. And just on a final question, on a, anybody might come in here, um, in terms of media coverage of Trump, do you think um, uh, there are lessons for it? Well, there are always lessons to be learned, but do you think the media are were too dazzled by every Trump tweet and that, you know, we um, we should be reviewing how we cover Trump. Or do we accept the fact this man is the president of the United States and a tweet from Donald Trump is very important and it uh, needs to be covered? Well, I mean, he, he dominates. He, he can play the media like no one else. And he he used that to his advantage during the campaign. And, and now he sets the media agenda when he gets up in the morning and he tweets. So I think it's this very interesting manipulation of the media by Trump in one way. Um, that that that's being played out. Um, I mean, I've heard the argument made that the media shouldn't be reporting these tweets, or certainly shouldn't be reporting them in the detail it does. I, I can't agree with that. I I think, as you say, he's the president of the United States. He's one of the most powerful people in the world. Um, in international diplomacy, for example, words are actions. I mean, things that he tweets do have real world consequences. Um, you know, they affect how America's allies see it positioning itself, they, you know, have really significant effects within American society. They can be incendiary, they can they can set off conflict. There's no question but that we have to report them. The, the more uh, pertinent question, I think, is how are they reported? And I think the more, uh, the bigger challenge for media is to report them critically. In other words, to not to be afraid to point out when Donald Trump is lying, when he's not telling the truth, when he's contradicting himself, and not to feel that the requirement to be balanced and objective requires us to enforce a sort of a false equivalence or a a false sense of balance in our stories. And I think there's a way of reporting these tweets. I think not reporting them is not an option, but there's certainly a way of reporting them that's responsible and you know, it's it's a type of reporting I think that our readers now. In other words, we should hold Donald Trump to the same standards we would hold any person, any holder of that office to, even if it means the same story is sometimes being repeated. You know, I mean, a, a lie is a lie. If it's, if it's repeated, it, you I, don't stop reporting it. I think, that, I think the issue isn't really the tweets because I think I think Ron's right. You, you've you've got to cover them. I think what happened was there was quite a profound reappraisal in the American press during the election campaign. Uh, newspapers which were it's it, it's much more an American tradition than us uh, than us but we have it too in in relation to for, for example RTE this notion of objectivity of, of balance meaning that you have to give the same amount of space to both sides of an argument that you can't pitch yourself on one side of an argument or the other that was profoundly changed in the course of the election campaign you saw serious newspapers actually saying Donald you know in their headlines Donald Trump lies again uh, and uh, it, 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 it's about, uh, but, but in, the, in the, the European media, you don't see 
the same problems with with that sort of thing. You just see it in broadcasting when broadcasting is covered, uh, when broadcasting is is uh, subject to state controls and balance requirements that are artificial and quite difficult. Well, I think it's time for us to stop talking about Donald Trump for now and take a break into the new year at least. Thanks again to Suzanne Lynch, Paddy Smith, Ruan McCormack for coming in today. Also to producer Declan Conlon and sound engineer JJ Vernon and most especially to you, the listeners, for being with us throughout the year. We look forward to having your company again in 2018. In the meantime, Happy New Year to you all and goodbye for now. Goodbye.